I'm not sure if this phrase actually got said between us, but I remember one of us saying, I think we just got married. (laughs) This is Right Here, Right Now, a podcast brought to you by Vocal, an online platform for creators of all kinds and all levels of experience. It's a place to post, to read, to be inspired. I'm your host, Erica Wagner. This season, we'll hear eight essays all posted to Vocal by independent creators. Afterwards, we get to hear from the creators themselves about what inspired them, what they're working on, and what keeps them going. If you have any questions that linger after the episode, head to vocal.media to leave a comment for the authors right on their essay. Who knows? You might be inspired to write something yourself. Here's Right Here, Right Now. It's hard to imagine a more loving and tender story than the one we have for you today. It's a sweeping tale of love and a cross-country tour to celebrate it. The best part? It's all true. Stay tuned after the essay to listen in on my conversation with the author. Here's I Swore I'd Never Get Married, Then I Had Ten Weddings by Dane B.H. I swore I'd never get married. Then I had ten weddings. One night, during the year's shortest days, two people who didn't much like large parties found the same quiet corner of a very busy room. One of the people was actually at the party in order to work up the nerve to flirt with a local musician, but found himself more interested in the woman on the couch with the joke about George Bush and the quiche. He invited her to play a game of Scrabble. She offered to cook dinner. He won by 250 points. She roasted Brussels sprouts and bought a Scrabble dictionary. He brought her to meet his family, who lived only a few blocks away. She went on a cross-country poetry tour, and he joined her for a week to meet many of her family and friends. He loved the town she hoped to move back to. I know we're not having this conversation yet, he'd said, looking around her favorite place in the world. But I think I'd like living here. He convinced her to join him for a trip to Disneyland, where she begrudgingly admitted that she was having fun, if only because she liked watching him smile on the roller coasters. She got better at Scrabble, but still rarely won. They moved in together and built a house of cast iron pans and postcards. He went to school to get his teaching certification while working as a full-time teacher, and she promised to encourage him and keep dinner warm. She wrote poems and taught children to cook and sent her book to more publishers than she admitted to anyone, and he hung those dreams in the sky like constellations to follow. He dreamed about children, about an extended family of friends, and a back door that never locked. It was not the great romances of the books they both loved, the high-stakes drama and angst of a quest to find true love. There was nothing for their love to conquer, Nothing to prove, only a slow-growing gentleness that took hold with an incredible strength until each didn't want to live without the other. And each had a wonderful extended family whom they couldn't wait for the other to meet and join. But they didn't talk much about marriage. Neither of them believed marriage was necessary to build the life they wanted. 
Maybe someday, if it became legally necessary to protect the children, or if someone needed health insurance. But neither of them liked weddings. Too big, too busy, too much fuss. What was a wedding compared to a lifetime of spaghetti potlucks? There wasn't supposed to be a proposal. Or a wedding. We'd taken the train from Seattle to Portland, a three-hour rumble on the northern leg of the Amtrak Cascades route to our favorite bed and breakfast, where the rooms are named for Pacific Northwest writers. We settled in for a weekend of book browsing and food carts, maybe a little excursion out of the city, if we were up for it. The plan had been to come to Portland to talk about us. We'd been dating for two years, moved in together, but had been evading and avoiding any conversations about the future. A weekend away seemed like a good container for a potentially fraught conversation. We both came into it wondering if we were on the same page. A notebook was a spur-of-the-moment decision. A curiosity shop a few blocks down from our lodgings showcased handmade sketchbooks with unusual covers. One of them spoke to me. A small book, spiral-bound between pieces of a Scrabble board. I'd sworn I'd keep dating him until I won a game. I hadn't yet. I bought the Scrabble notebook. There were glass containers, the kind that hold penny candy lined up on the counter. One held skeleton keys in various states of rusting. One held loose game pieces. One dice. I paused in front of the one full of loose Scrabble tiles and fished out a handful. I wasn't thinking, really, about the six letters I'd chosen from the mix. I bought a tube of glue from the corner store and headed back. Back at the guest house, I glued the tiles I'd picked onto the cover of the notebook. One day, the letters spelled out. I let it dry and stuck it in my backpack before going to find him. What if we went out to find a waterfall? I asked. We both loved waterfalls, the majesty of them, the meditative flow and crash. He agreed. A waterfall would be a good place to have our talk. Multnomah Falls was a quiet 40-minute drive from the city. When we reached the water, we were not disappointed. The falls were a multi-story drop into a deep pool, breathtaking and gorgeous, with a bridge at the high drama midway point. But it was also crowded. We weren't the only ones who thought visiting the falls was a good use of a Saturday afternoon. We crammed onto the observation platform, but quickly realized it wouldn't work for the conversation we planned to have. It was my idea to take the hike to the top of the falls. While it looked manageable enough from the bottom, the steep path of constant switchbacks burned our legs and ran us ragged. People on their way down started offering encouragement when they saw us straggling up the hill, promising it wasn't much farther now. Had I known what that hike really was, I'd have never suggested it. But turning back felt like another evasion. We'd committed to this, damn it. I let him push me up the last few switchbacks, his hands flat against my backpack, propelling me up the last few hundred feet of the climb. There were fewer people at the top of the waterfall, and it was easy to head upstream from the falls and find some rocks to sit on while we peeled off our shoes to soak our new blisters in the icy water. After we caught our breath, I pulled the notebook out of my pack and handed it to him. One day, he read, yeah, I said. I figured we could take notes. He smiled. The first page reads, 
Things I want to do. We passed the book back and forth, writing a collaborative list of our hopes and dreams, including things like write a play, publish a book, and host regular potlucks. We turned a page and started a new list, places we want to go. When that was full, we kept going, list after list, sketching out the lives we wanted for ourselves. And when we were done writing, we looked at each other and decided, yeah, we're going to do this together. The walk down the trail was giddy. We practically flew, cheered the bedraggled hikers making their way up the switchbacks. We paused on one turn and asked a fellow hiker to take a quick photo of us. Two weeks later, I assembled the biggest group text I'd ever sent. So, to make it easier on the parents, grandparents, and most of the world's normal people, who have relationships that follow a progression from meeting, to dating, to seriously dating, to engaged, to married, to death, Partner and I devised a shorthand to explain exactly what happened two weeks ago atop a waterfall in Portland. We eloped. However, if it makes sense, or if you want to engage with our relationship on the same terms that we do, consider this story. We went to Portland with the intent to have a long and serious but good what-do-you-want-out-of-life-in-this-relationship discussion. To do this, we climbed a waterfall and bought a notebook to take notes in. The notebook covers were pieces of a Scrabble board. We sat down with our feet in the water and made a bunch of to-do lists that included things like have babies and cultivate an awesome community and get play produced slash novel published and make art and go to Wales and promised that we'd stick around to support one another in getting those things done or do them together. Then we climbed down the waterfall and stuffed ourselves full of delicious Cuban food feeling like nothing had changed, except that now all the vague and unspoken feelings we'd been carrying for a while were now spoken and specific actions. And we couldn't, for some reason, stop grinning. That was supposed to be it, the happy announcement, a flurry of congratulations, and then the beginning of the rest of everything. We didn't expect protests. Does this really mean that we don't get to dance at your wedding? There has to be dancing. It's a rule. I demand a party. Mazel tov, and I'm with everyone else. We like parties. The chat comments were soon followed by incredulous inquisitions from our families and communities. It wasn't long before we realized we were going to have to give the people what they wanted. In some form, at least. A typical wedding was a non-starter. For one, neither of us liked big parties. The very thought of cacophony, music, and mandatory two-minute socializing with dozens of guests was exhausting. Plus, we were young. Most of our friends weren't wealthy. We had family on two different coasts and friends scattered in between them. We'd already refused several wedding invitations ourselves, unable to afford the travel and the time off work. We didn't want to be a burden. I'll give him credit for being the first to say, well... What if we went to them? It wasn't a far-fetched idea. By then, I'd gone on two cross-country tours, performing poetry in people's living rooms, art galleries, and coffee shops. We both liked a good road trip. I had a planner's love of spreadsheets and logistics organizing. Maybe there was a way to do this that would offer the celebration our community sought in a way that actually made us feel celebrated. We called it 
The Wedding Tour. Over 10 stops and six states, we held small ceremonies with groups of family and friends. His mother got to help plan one in a public park with a marimba band and deli platters. My mother got to help plan one at a local zoo with a cart full of popsicles and a collection of pies instead of cakes. One in the living room of my parents' house was devoted to my college friends. 3,000 miles away, we ate Chinese takeout and tres leches cake with his college friends. A fiercely competitive Scrabble game emerged at the wedding featuring both of our mothers. We all lost to my partner. At another, we had to fight a film crew for the park pavilion we'd rented. It turned out our shockingly inexpensive permit was for the grass around the pavilion. But when they heard what was happening, the film crew graciously shared the space and got out of there before it was time to break out the chuppah. We cobbled together a short ceremony with components from our respective traditions. A Unitarian chalice, breaking a glass, a different chuppah at every ceremony, and vows that were partially improvised and partially based on the seven blessings said at every Jewish wedding. But the ceremonial bit never took longer than 10 minutes, and then it was all about community. With groups ranging from four people to 60, the one at the zoo was my family and the biggest by far. We could spend real time talking, relaxing, and enjoying ourselves. At one wedding, we forgot who was supposed to bring the chuppah, and instead were sheltered by our friends' lifted arms in a powerful, if tiring, metaphor. They were really good sports. Three weeks on the road meant I had a rotating cast of three wedding dresses, each of which could be easily rolled or stuffed into a suitcase without getting wrinkled. He switched it up between a pair of pinstriped shorts, it was August, and a button-down and a utilikilt. At each ceremony, we explained our wedding rings. His, a plain gold band with textured grooves that vaguely resembled tree bark. Mine, an Art Deco heirloom from my great-grandmother, with a diamond set in silver filigree. While I work with my hands and couldn't wear the ring full-time, I liked the role it played in our ceremonies. It was my something old. We knew we wanted physical memories of the weddings, but hiring 10 photographers was definitely out of the question. So we decided that anyone who wanted to take photos could. Hence the surviving photos that made it into this story. But for the rest of the time, we had the scrapbook station. At each wedding, we put out colorful paper and markers and invited people to write messages, memories, or, in the case of some wonderfully talented family members, sketches of the day. People loved it and got really creative. Being able to show off the book as it grew became one of my favorite things about the later weddings. Of course, the end of the wedding tour was just the beginning. And when it came down to it, nothing was more important than that day atop Multnomah Falls and the way we slowly, together, wrote the story we wanted to live. These days, those pages are full of notations, crossouts, and check marks. Some things have changed with time. Some, like have really good friends, will never have a specific date scrawled next to them. It's a journey, and one we're still on together, sometimes pushing each other up the switchbacks and sometimes skipping merrily down. Oh, and reader, two years after we got married, I finally won a Scrabble game.
was I swore I'd never get married. Then I had 10 weddings by Dane B.H. I had a truly delightful conversation with Dane, where we chatted about her favorite of the weddings, the role friendship has played in her marriage, and what items have been crossed out of the book. Here's Dane. I want to turn now to the wonderful piece that we're going to be discussing. How far out in time are we from your, I would say from your wedding, but from your weddings, plural? The wedding tour was in 2013. The first wedding on the tour was in February. And the final wedding on the tour was in September. So we've we've hit that line, I guess, nine years, you could say. And why did you decide to write this piece for Vocal? I had been wanting to write it for a very long time. It is something that comes up when people ask, like, what have you done that's unconventional? It comes up anytime somebody gets married and talks about their wedding and they ask me about mine. And I say, oh, which one? It also comes up in conversations about accessibility and about neurodivergence and about what do you do with these life cycle events, right? These things for which we gather when you have a principal party involved or multiple principal parties involved who do not do well with crowds, right? For whom that feels like torture, not a celebration. You know, and it talks about in the essay how initially there were not supposed to be any weddings, right? We made an announcement. We're, this is it. We're in it for life. There was a swell of demand. <laughs> and you met that demand in a unique way. I want to ask, what was it like to reflect on this experience, not just as a participant, but as a storyteller. Something happens when you decide to tell a story on the, on the page or on the screen, rather than just share it as an anecdote with friends. So we had a website for our wedding. There was a story on the front of the website, the homepage of the website, that from which I took the beginning of my vocal story. So I'd, I'd already had this piece that I'd crafted while I was living it, right? It was written before the tour. It gave our origin story. One of my favorite things about it is how it openly calls out the fact that this relationship is not and, and has never really been a great high-stakes dizzying romance, but this slow-growing thing that developed really deep roots and that the decision to get married was not climactic. It was an affirmation of things that we already knew. How did you both decide on the shorthand eloped? Tell me about that conversation. So we're at the top of this waterfall. We are exhausted. We are sweaty. We are sitting with a notebook between us. We have written this grandiose list of all the things we want to do with our lives, and we have agreed. And I don't remember who said it. I don't remember that we said, I do, or okay, or let's do this. I don't actually remember the substance of it. I remember the feeling, the feeling of a simultaneous lightness and grounding, a kind of settledness. And so in that moment, it felt like the deal had been sealed. It felt... In Judaism, right, which is my tradition, marriage is a contract. It felt as though we had written our own marriage contract, and it took the form of multiple to-do lists of the life that we sketched out, the life that we wanted together, and agreed to go for it together. 
there was a, a giddiness about us. And I'm not sure if this phrase actually got said between us, but I remember one of us saying, I think we just got married. <laughs> and so eloped felt like the most resonant way of explaining it to the broader world. We didn't think we were going to have a wedding. We didn't think we were going to say vows in front of people at that point. We had said everything we needed to say to each other. So it felt like an elopement. But that's fascinating, isn't it? Because marriage or a partnership between two people is essentially a very private commitment. Yet there is this expectation of a public declaration. What was your original opposition to weddings? So the original opposition was to marriage, in part because both of us come from the queer community. Both of us had been in relationships that we thought would never be sanctioned by the state, let alone the country. I had accepted the fact that I wouldn't be legally allowed to get married as a fact of my life. By the time I met my partner... He had just changed his name. He had just changed his legal documents. We could get married in the state that we lived in legally. But that was almost a fluke in some ways, because most of the relationships both of us had had prior to that would not have been legal or sanctioned. And this is before nationwide gay marriage. And the state that we were living in was on the cusp of passing it. But we still thought, nah. Marriage is an institution of the patriarchy that has been used to subjugate women and use them as property, and also we're queers, and we don't need the state in bed with us, and we don't need that kind of state-sanctioned legitimacy. Two months before the tour, the state we were in legalized gay marriage. And then, just to put a cherry on it, the state controller announced that the state wasn't counting on all of these additional fees coming in from gay marriage licenses. They said, we didn't work that into the budget. So we're going to take this windfall that is going to come with these gay marriage licenses on the day that it becomes legal, and we are going to donate all of them, all of the money that comes in from those extra marriage licenses to the queer youth shelter in town. So after that, how could we not? We did the legal wedding outside. Most people don't know when the date of our legal marriage is. In fact, I think the only people who know are the people who witnessed it, who are our signed witnesses, which were the members of his family. And the way we announced it was to say, hey, can we come over for dinner tonight? I'll make spaghetti. And then we said, we need to get my partner on my health insurance. Can you help us sign the paperwork for that? And then I handed it to his mother, who was an internet licensed marriage officiant, and she looked down and said, yeah, give it to me. Give it to me. Let me take a look at it for you. I'll help you figure it out. I'm good at this kind of paperwork. And she looked down and said, this is a marriage license. And I said, how else is he going to get my health insurance? And at each wedding, we had set up sort of pieces, almost like set pieces that we could bring from wedding to wedding so that there was continuity in the ceremony of it while also being really flexible. We opened each wedding by lighting a chalice in his Unitarian tradition. And the chalice we, and candles we brought with us from place to place, we broke a glass at every wedding as part of Jewish tradition. We had a chuppah 
at every wedding, also in accordance with Jewish tradition. That was one of my favorites because at every wedding, the chuppah was different and it meant something. At the biggest wedding, it was my father's talus. At the smallest wedding, it was my friend's talus who had come on his lunch break to be with us. But I had a profound sense of connection that wherever we went, there would be people invested enough in us and in our lives that to be willing at least to give up a lunch break and to come hold a prayer shawl over their heads. Because of course we didn't bring poles with us to make that easy. No, we tired everyone's arms by making them hold it up above us. The reason you have a wedding canopy, a chuppah, in Jewish weddings is to symbolize the hospitality of your future house. It's open on all four sides, and traditionally, the chuppah is held by the people who hold you. And in every place, every wedding, we had different chuppah bearers, ones who were willing to get real tired so that we could get married. And if there's a better visual for what community support looks like, I don't know what it is. That's really beautiful, Dane. It always surprised me, both then and now how invested other people were in my getting married. People who get excited about weddings as a concept are completely foreign to me. And it's one of the reasons why I wasn't sold on having a wedding, right? And why I was so incredibly befuddled when people started clamoring for, we want a party. We, we want to celebrate you. I didn't get it. To some extent, I still don't, if I'm being honest. But I love the ways in which telling this particular story has delighted people and excited people and allowed some people to say, I didn't know you could do it that way. If you could go back and talk to that person walking up towards the top of a waterfall, would you tell her anything? And if so, what? And why? It's funny you ask that because one of my favorite writing exercises is write a letter to your younger self. I use it all the time when I teach, and it's often a good jump start for me when I'm stuck. I've never thought about that moment that way. I think if I could appear as some ghostly apparition at the top of the waterfall, maybe sitting pensively across the stream from these two babies scribbling in a notebook. If my younger self happened to look up and catch the vision of older, wiser, fatter, more smiling me, I would just grin at her and nod. That's great, Dane. Thank you so much. The visuals Dane is able to conjure, in her writing as well as her words, made me feel almost as if I was at each of the weddings she described, as if my own arms were worn out from holding up a chuppah. It's a marvelously special thing to be allowed to look into such a meaningful memory. Next time, on Right Here, Right Now, we'll hear about another labor of love, but this one at a different time in life, the end. That will be The Lonely Funeral Project by Gabrielle Benna. Whoever you are, whatever your story, Vocal belongs to you. If you like the show, 
come be a part of where it all got started. Join me and the rest of our brilliant creators on Vocal.media, where you can post, read, and comment. If you like what you hear, join us for season two of Right Here, Right Now, when we dive into stories from the Vocal Plus Fiction Anthology. And of course, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Right Here, Right Now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Erica Wagner. Thanks for listening. Right Here, Right Now is produced by Vocal in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Jacob Fromer and Andrew Hurwitz, and the team at Pod People. Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Ashton Carter, Rebecca Chasson, Carter Wogan, and Morgan Foose.